It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only, call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 Three one three eight one four five six seven, or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you to the program tonight. Uh, the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, February sixteenth, two 2012 is live and we're ready to go. Thank you for being a part of the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you. Looking forward to a good study tonight on, I think, some interesting questions we're doing one of our uh, listener question programs yeah uh, often what we do if we get questions from people that don't seem like they would suffice to fill a whole hour's study sometimes we base a whole hour long study right. on a question we get right but if we get some that seem like they maybe wouldn't cover that duration we kind of keep them piled up and then every so often we have one of these programs where we just try to deal with some and we've got five tonight that we're going to put out there. I thought they would be interesting, but I don't think anybody else thought they would be. We're getting minimal re- feedback so far, so you, uh, we're going to have to have a lot of live feedback tonight. Jerry. All right, we want to hear from you on the program tonight. And since uh, maybe these are all duds, uh, you could send in your question. We'll put it in. Maybe, uh, that, maybe I don't. You I, really don't it up. I don't think they're duds. I right. think they're okay. important questions. All right. maybe, maybe everybody was just real busy. In fact, I think we got a. Uh, uh, a participant we, phoning in who's going to do. join us. Well, he'll join us here in a minute. All right. Can he hear us? He can. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we've got Chris from Decatur, Alabama on the phone, and he's going to join us to discuss this first question. Here's our first question. This comes from Tony, uh, Tony, uh, who asked, what is baptism for the dead? How would you do it? Okay. All right. So we're going to be asking a question um, that oh. is based on the text in... Uh, uh, what is that? First Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15:29. That's correct. It talks about baptism for the dead. Why don't you uh, go ahead and just give us a teaser on the rest of these questions? So that okay, uh, okay, real quick. The the, the others are going to be in order. What about uh, how can you be a good Christian at work when your when your boss is fighting you all the time? Right. Uh, that's number two. The number three I thought would be very interesting. We haven't got any feedback yet, but from Indiana, a question about labor unions. S- several parts of that question about labor unions and how we might view them on a biblical basis. Number four, a question about Christians, can they be active, can they take a role as a soldier? Okay. Can they be an active participant in the military? And then finally, the fifth one is going to be, how were, sa- how were people saved during the Old Testament era before the New Testament began? Those, Interesting. Those are, that's just a brief overview, but we got to go and quickly to have, this first We one. have time for number six from you if you'd like to send it in. Ma- question, maybe. 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 Questions at collegeview.com, 877-381-4567, and then the chat room is a good place as well, where there are many listeners there. Already tonight, you can sign in and chat with other listeners. All right. So remember how you can contact us. Uh, you gave all the contact info, I guess, I already. So remember yeah. how you can join in, participate. We've got on the phone Chris Bates from Decatur, Alabama. Chris, thanks for joining us on the Virtual Bible Study. Hey, thanks, Greg and Jacob, for having me on tonight. I appreciate it. Hey, good to hear from you, Chris. I got an email. I got an email from you earlier today in which you indicated that just this week you have spent some considerable time. Studying this question, baptism for the dead. Uh, let me read the let me read the passage under consideration. Now, this is the New American Standard rendering. This is First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine. Otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? That's the New American Standard rendering. Some of you who, like me, most often use the King James Version will read it this way. King James Version says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, I think everybody agrees, Chris, that's a difficult passage. Uh, and I, I was reading after one fellow who said that he had found more than 30 different views expressed by commentators on that passage. Well... I can't imagine that 30 different views could all be correct. I think there's uh, quite a bit of erroneous teaching on that, don't you? 
Well, there, there's no question that there's erroneous teaching on it, and I, and, uh, I, I suppose that probably the most uh, popular teaching that we've heard about is that done by the Mormon Church, uh, where they actually practice something called baptism for the dead. Uh, they, they will immerse you, if you are a Mormon, they will immerse you uh, in order that there may be 15, 16, or more people uh, that you can be baptized for in order that they who were lost and having already gone on can somehow or another reverse course and be saved. I, uh, that, I, hey, Chris, I heard, and Anthony is running our board tonight, and Anthony was telling me this just recently, that the Mormon Church is actually taking population roles at random and just baptize them. In other words, they're not being baptized for dear old Aunt Sally who passed away 10 years ago. They're just getting lists of names of people uh, at random from all over the world and baptizing for them. Anthony, there is some, there's some flap about that, isn't there, Anthony? Yeah, I was, I was listening to the radio today, and there was a whole piece about, about this practice and about um, some Jewish people who were very upset that the Mormons were baptizing some of their deceased you know jewish relatives and they were saying no way they you can't do that they don't you know if my relative were alive they would not allow you to do that so these were these were unbelieving jews and the mormons are baptizing for them and their living relatives are saying stop doing that right isn't that right. amazing it is amazing and i'll tell you uh, this week is funny is actually the first time i've heard of that particular practice because I was speaking with a fellow brother who had actually come out of the Mormon church and told me that he had done that years and years ago. He, they just had 15 different names. He didn't know these people, and he was baptized for them. And the, the, the question comes is, if someone can be baptized for those who are dead, can he also believe for them? Yeah. Uh, you know, hey, hey Chris, mean? hang on just a minute. I want to hear your arguments against this practice, but I want to give you, I, let me give you a couple quotes from the Mormons. Joseph, here's a quote from Joseph Smith. Of course, we all know him to be the, the, the originator of the Latter-day Saints movement. He said, quote, A man may act as proxy for his own relatives. We may be baptized for those whom we have much friendship for. So he, he taught that you could be baptized as a proxy for someone else, but he sort of suggests someone you know or a relative. Then in 1959, a man named Stephen Richards first counselor to the first presidency wrote, All men are equal before the law, and all are to have the opportunity, even the dead, to accept the gospel and receive the promised blessings. But all must know and understand, and the dead who have gone on into the spirit world without knowledge of the gospel are to be hereafter given an election to embrace it through vicarious works done for them by their descendants and other friends in the brotherhood of the church. This work is done within the temples provided for that purpose. So I mean, there's just no doubt that the Mormons are teaching and practicing that and have been for a long time. On the subject, Lane uh, in the chat room says, I don't think that 1 Corinthians 15 verse 29 is giving a specific God-given baptism for the dead. It seems more like uh, of an action that some performed in hopes of saving the dead. Or am I slightly off the ball here? Well, Chris, how do you explain it? I would disagree with uh, Lane's conclusion on that. Um, again, and I also want to say with respect to the passage that, as Greg mentioned a moment ago, it, it is a difficult passage to understand. Uh, there are more than, than a few different ideas on it. And I've only come across actually one commentator, guys, who said it was an easy passage. And then I'm not sure that I agreed with him either. Well, that makes me wonder but, about his judgment on all things, Chris. That's, that's right. Uh, but I, I would have to, this, this is where I'm at with it, and this is after what I consider careful study and, and, uh, and reverence for the Word of God. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, what you have as far as the developing thought is the teaching of Paul concerning the resurrection from the dead. That is a theme throughout that particular chapter. And there are obviously those at Corinth who have a problem with it, and they're teaching that there is no resurrection. In verses 12 through 20, uh, Paul gives a, uh, a consequence to this, to this teaching, and, and you can read that as you will, but uh, one of the major consequences of it is if, if you're right, you folks at Corinth are right, that, uh, that are saying that there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even the Son of God has been raised, and we who are apostles 
and are teaching that God has done this marvelous thing in raising his son from the dead to give us hope are actually false witnesses against God. We're testifying against him that he did something that he didn't do. This, this thought, I think, is, is running prevalent throughout the chapter. So when he gets to verse 29 and asks the question, otherwise what will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all, why then are they baptized for them? I think that what he has in mind here is not a practice of baptizing someone for dead people or a practice that was going on at the time known as baptism for the dead. I think it is a kind of a play on words and a description of actually one's obedience to the gospel. When Paul says that they are baptized for the dead, it's kind of like uh, his statement in Acts 17 and verse 30 when he mentions repentance there, but he doesn't say anything about faith or confession or baptism. It's comprehensive. And I think the idea here is, if you folks are right that, there's no, uh, that there is no uh, uh, resurrection from the dead, then what are they going to do or we going to do who are baptized for the remission of sins? In other words, we are obedient to the gospel with the hope of everlasting life on the other end of this thing, and we are being persecuted daily for this. What, what are we going to do uh, with that? What, what in the world are we going to do with no hope whatsoever. So yeah, I and in the context, I think you're right, Chris, because in the context, he goes on to basically make that argument. In fact, even earlier in the chapter, he had specifically made the argument, you know, uh, uh, if Christ be not raised, our preaching is vain, your faith is also vain. Uh, we are of all men most miserable, uh, if in this life only we have hope in Christ Jesus. Uh, you know, so he's basically, I think you're right, the whole context of that chapter is on the resurrection, and Paul was arguing against those who were denying a future resurrection. And he's basically saying, because he was talking to some who were Christians, he was arguing against false teachers within the ranks of the church who were teaching that the resurrection was past, there was no future resurrection coming, and, and I think he's just making the argument, your position is senseless, or what we're doing is senseless. Right, absolutely. And I, and I think that when you look at that context in that way, I do appreciate that there are other views, and maybe even views that have been thought out more and developed better uh, than I have spoken mine here. But I think that what I have articulated here and what you just articulated fits better with the context of the statement where we find it, that yeah. Paul is dealing with the resurrection from the dead. If there's no resurrection, then what will they do who are baptized in, for nothing, essentially? They, they, they're they going to die and not be raised. What was all this persecution for? What was all this denying of self for? Exactly. If there's no hope of, of everlasting life. And so the baptism for the dead there, the dead then would reference just those who... If the whole if, concept of dying. If, I mean, why are you baptized in view of your own death or the or, right. or others' death? Why are you being baptized if there's no resurrection? All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah let, and I've, I have heard a view that suggests that the dead there is the the idea of being dead to sin. Uh, that may also work, but I don't think that it best harmonizes with the thought. John in the chat room says, my view after studying this is uh, this is li- likely a reference to being baptized into the baptism of Christ. It is an odd reference to that, but it makes sense. With the context of the passage, it is the best explanation I've heard so far. Okay. Chris, I know you would agree. Just a basic rule of biblical interpretation is that you can't put an interpretation on one passage that forces a conflict with another plain passage. So what we've got here is a very difficultly worded expression. I mean, that that one guy that you said didn't think it was hard, I think he's wrong. This is hard. This is this tough verse. Yeah. You, so what you do when you run into one like that is that you let others that you know are very clear serve as commentary for the one that's more difficult. And all yeah, of the. Go I'm ahead. sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Chris. I think I think that that's the the only way to interpret the scriptures accurately. The clear text we know that we can deduce, we can understand. That has to be uh, the 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 uh, kind of modifying factor in how we understand a difficult verse and. Uh, you know, another thing I might suggest about the baptism for the dead, if the baptism for the dead was in the, indeed the practice of baptizing someone for yet someone else who was dead, then surely you would have found some reference to that in, in the occasion of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, why weren't? Yeah, oh, that's right. And, and, and in that text, in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 26, Abraham, Jesus was telling the story, and he quoted Abraham telling the rich man, 
There's a great gulf between us, and no one can cross over it effectively. Luke 16, verse 26. Well, that wouldn't be a true statement. If you could be baptized for someone who was not saved in the Hadean realm and get them out of torment and bring them into a place of comfort, then then Jesus would tell a lie in Luke 16. Exactly, and, and, that, and that is a conclusion we cannot be forced to yeah. hold it all. We, can't, we better not hold that. You know, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 18, 20, the, pers- the, the person whose sins will die, the son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. You, uh, uh, you know, the idea of accountability, and that when we die, our destiny is fixed. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, each one will be judged according to what he has done in his body, whether it be good or bad. Uh, Romans fourteen twelve. each one of us shall give account of himself to God. All of those kind of things teach individual accountability. Nobody can obey for you. Here's an interesting proposition. Chris, think about this. If, if it were possible for you, uh, as a living person, to, to, to perform an act of righteousness and have the blessing for that, Transferred to someone else in, in in the realm of the dead. Okay, so that's what you're doing something for somebody. You're you know someone who passed. And out. that's what they're basically teaching with this baptism for the dead. In other words, I, I'm a living person. I'm going to do this act of righteousness, and I'm going to transfer the benefit of it to someone who's in Hades. Okay, if you could do that, could you do the opposite of that? Could yeah, I go that, out? And, that is I, a good question. Could I go out and commit murder? Blame and, it on them. And, and say, hey, don't put that on my record. Send that over there to that guy who's mm-hmm. already dead. Or, or or what about this? Could could you stop believing for someone who died in faith and is in the realm of the bosom of Abraham? Yeah, yeah. Could, could, you, you, could, could you, you know, kind of reverse that? I, I'd like to, uh, the, the, the old question is, if not, why not? That's yeah, right. Yeah. All right, Chris, I think we've got it. I think we nailed okay. it. Well, th- well, thank you for having me on, guys. Thanks for calling in. Have you, Hey, okay. have your yes. people call my people. That, that's right, yeah, okay. All right, oh we'll talk God to you later. Bye-bye. You bet. All right, 877-381-4567, questions at collegeu.com. Perhaps John summarizes it best when he said, uh, Peter said it best, beloved brother Paul, speaking of in them, of th- those things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do the rest of the Scripture, Second Peter 3, verses 15 and 16. I think John's right, and, th- and that's the idea of taking a, a, a tough passage admittedly tough, and then twisting it when you've got plain passages mm-hmm. that are easily understood, and you, and by the twist you're putting on this difficult passage, you're forcing a contradiction with numerous plain passages. That's that's resting the scriptures to your own destruction. All I think right. John's right. All right. We appreciate that question. And the next one coming up after the break is, how can you be the best Christian at work when your boss is fighting with you at all ends? And then that'll segue us into the question on unions, and that's going to take a while. Yeah. All right. Don't go anywhere. We'll get back right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. Hi, I'm Wade Shelton. In 1 Peter 3.15, the scripture says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You see, we believe here at College View that we should be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks us. And I believe that we are dedicated to this cause. That's why we here at College View bring you the virtual Bible study each week. Our hope is that you will join us each week here on the virtual Bible study in hopes of strengthening your faith so that you will be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. Please join us here every Thursday night on the virtual Bible study. I know that it's worth an hour of your time. Here are some quotes worth pondering. The deeper the darkness, the farther a little light will shine. If you're too busy to pray, you're much busier than God ever intended for you to be. Robert E. Lee said, The Bible is a book in comparison with which all others in my eyes are of minor importance, and which in all of my perplexities and distresses has never failed to give me light and strength. Man, I wish I'd said that. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. We welcome you back to the program tonight as we take a variety of listener questions and time for yours, probably, if you would hurry and get it in at 877-381-4567. Questions at collegeview.com. The chat room is uh, got some good comments in there as well tonight, so join in 
there. Let us know your thoughts. Uh, Linda asked the question, how can you be the best Christian at work when your boss is fighting you at all ends? Good question, Linda. I, well, I think Lane has asked for a necessary clarification. In the chat room, Lane asked, uh, think a thing to be taken into consideration is fighting you on it. What does it mean, fighting you on everything? Are we talking about the boss being ungodly, trying to force you to do ungodly actions uh, at your job? I think that's the thing. In other words, she says her boss is fighting her. Well, if he's if he's fighting you when you're trying to do right, tell the truth and and be honest and obey the law and so forth, then that's something that that would take one reaction. If on the other hand he's just uh, uh, you know kind of mean and very demanding and he expects you to you know. Do eight hard hours of work for eight hours pay, but he's not asking you to do anything sinfully wrong, then I think that would take a different response. Okay. Uh, to, on the first one, if he's asking you to do something unscriptural and uh, against God's will, First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse 16 would be a, a verse that would provide some consolation. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. So if you are standing up for what's right and your boss is being belligerent about it, uh, you should uh, have great comfort and consolation in the fact that you are not alone, that God approves of you standing for what is right, and you are in uh, the league of uh, many who have lived before you. Yeah, and, and the Acts 5.29 principle, we ought to obey God rather than men. If they're asking you to do something right. sinful, you, you can't do that, obviously. Uh, so if if they're asking you to sin, you just can't do that. And and you're going to have to hold your ground for for what is right. All right. Uh, on the other hand, if he's just a very tough boss, and just you, sort of unpleasant. Unpleasant. The Bible actually the Bible actually addresses that in First Peter chapter two verse eighteen. First Peter two eighteen. Servants be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, yes, but also to the froward. That's the word the King James uses, and that just means contrary or mean. Okay, that's a little easier to understand. Yeah, so you know, if if you've got a boss who's just ugly, uh, but he's not asking you to do anything sinfully wrong, then you're still supposed to obey him. Good comment. So I think I think an answer. I think that's a pretty quick answer to uh, Linda's two questions, uh, or, or one question. I think two parts to it. One is if they're asking you to do sinful things, you can't do it. But if they're just being very insistent that you do things a certain way, maybe even being a little mean in the way they put demands on you, you need to go ahead and do the best you can. The, the, the scriptures give lots of information about the responsibility of a servant to a master, and that probably is a good segue to our next question, Jacob. All right. Uh, uh, interesting comment from Josh, uh, Josiah in the chat room. He said, and in that way, shouldn't it be best, uh, definitely if you're single for your own protection, to try and find work somewhere else? Well, yep, potentially. If it's a if it's a tempting situation for you and you're you're, you're being challenged to where you might uh, you might uh, compromise your beliefs or uh, maybe certainly if certainly if it's if it's trying to force a compromise of your beliefs, get out of that situation. Right. Uh, if it's just a very unpleasant situation. Sometimes you don't have the option, but if you have the option, get out of the unpleasant. There's no there's no reason to stay in an unpleasant situation. Either. We're not we're not indentured servants like some that the Bible addressed. You know, the Bible was addressing some servants who didn't have an option. Right. But we have an option, and if you have that option and it's an unpleasant situation, get out of there. All right. Uh, another thing you need to remember as well in, the, in, in dealing with that difficult uh, boss. Titus chapter two verse nine: Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters and to please them well in all things. And again, no stipulations on what kind of master it was. Is he a real, real nice guy, or was he what I mean? And notice again, verse nine, uh, the latter part there, not answering again. So uh, it doesn't give you any. It doesn't give you any uh, license uh, to be uglier in return, or to to forget uh, your role as a servant. Guest one twenty six says, "Be submissive to their authority." This will be a good example for for him or her. I sure think that's right. Again, so long as they're not asking you to. Say. All right. All right, so that's a quick answer to Linda's question. Now, that segues us, Jacob, right to a question from Skip in Indiana about labor unions. He asked a bunch of questions, and I'm going to try to real quickly read through his list, and then we'll try to comment on some of them. All right. Are there some biblical principles that unions violate? Do the verses dealing with master-slave relations apply to employer-employee relationships? When a union calls for a strike, what is the Christian obligated to do? Mm -hmm. If a business violates some part of a contract, is it right for the Christian to refuse to work? Mm -hmm. When a business or management takes 
advantage of a worker who's a Christian, what recourse does he or she have? When a Christian who is part of a union is hired, who does the worker answer to? The place of employment or the union? What does the union, excuse me, what does the Christian who is in a union, what does the Christian who is in a union do if he, oh, he's a union member. What does he do if he wants to help another worker, but the union forbids him from helping? Okay. Okay. Can a Christian be a part of a union that sends a large portion of his dues to causes that are questionable in the least? Can a Christian be a part of a union that has a reputation for engaging in intimidating tactics to win its cause? And finally, is it right for a Christian to participate in a strike that is simply supportive of another union that is having a problem? Wow. Lots, lots, of, lots of questions. We're not going to be able to answer all of those questions. Uh, first, first question is, are there some biblical principles that unions violate? I, I don't think that the concept of a union violates any principle that I can think of per se. Now, that's not saying that there aren't that, that unions don't do things. I think we've got some pretty classic historical examples of unions that have done things that would violate biblical right. principles. But I, I, on its basic fundamental level, there's uh, nothing uh, wrong with union. Nothing. Uh, it'd be similar to a farmer, uh, farmers getting together and forming a co-op. I, I, that's what I, I I think that there's nothing inherently wrong with the concept of of a collective bargaining a labor union labor union. I don't think that there. Uh, I don't I don't know if anybody in our guest room. Anthony, Anthony you got any you thoughts, got thoughts on, on that? that? No, I, I mean I I don't I can't see anything wrong with it as long as it's um, you know organized for for the purpose of doing good and not intending to to do harm or to, to cheat anybody. Seems okay. reasonable to me. Yeah. Now, the follow-up to that is, can we go to the Bible, Skip asked, can we go to the Bible and read the verses that deal with master and slave and apply them to employer-employee relationships? I think yes, although they're not identical. They're not identical. Uh, but I think that there's some things that we can learn from okay. the many passages. For instance, now let me read just part of Colossians chapter 3. Where it says, verse 22, beginning servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Jesus. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done, and there is no respect of persons. But it goes on to say, masters, give to your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So, I think there's principles stated there about dealing with one another that are certainly applicable. I don't think that the master-slave relationship of the first century is identical to the employer-employee relationship that we often share in the modern day. And anybody who thinks so that they are identical needs to go back and read some historical documentation upon the horrible plight of slaves in that time. I think if a slave from the first century heard uh, a modern American <laughs> worker complaining about the way he's being treated, right. they they probably just laugh themselves silly. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not an identical situation. We need to understand it. But I do think there are some principles that we can draw from. All right. All right. Uh, what about the next one? When a union calls for a strike, what is a Christian obligated to do? Wow. I think that depends on what kind of a strike it is. We need some feedback from our uh, uh from our chat room, for those of you who are listening, uh, let us know what you think. But uh, there are two kinds of strikes, Jacob. There's a strike that happens when the when the agreed contract has expired. In other words, we agreed when we last negotiated this thing, we agreed that for the next three years we would work under this agreement. Right. That contract period has expired now. And we've been negotiating for some time. The union and the management have been negotiating for some time. And they haven't been able to come to terms. And so the union says, if you don't come to terms with us and if we, if you don't uh, give us some concessions here, we're going to stop working because we're, we're we don't have a contract with you at this point. Right, right. Uh, and so, in other words, that kind of a strike, I, I don't think that you're violating any biblical principles. In other words, you're not saying you, – you didn't promise you would work and now you're refusing to work under the terms that you promised you would work right. for. It's an expired contract. And so if you struck for that base on that basis, I don't think it would be wrong. There is a, a contract called a wildcat strike, right. where you just, you just the, the union tells everybody walk off the job. We've got a contract, but we're not going to honor it. Now I think you got a different scenario. Okay, 
All right. So I, I think it would depend on the kind of strike. All right. Well, if a business violates some part of a contract, is it right for a Christian to refuse to work? I think it is. I think so. I mean, again, it's in in our day and time, we have contractual agreements with right. one another. And if the manage, let, let's say the management agreed to pay us twelve dollars an hour, but they're refusing to do it. They're only going to give us eight dollars an hour. Right. Uh, wouldn't we have the? Wouldn't wouldn't it? Since they have violated the terms of the agreement we made with them. Wouldn't it be within our power? I think legally it's within our power. And I don't think morally there's anything that would argue against it. We could say, we refuse to work if you're not going to keep your agreement. Let's just put it like this. Let's say that you uh, you contracted with someone to come paint your house. And you said, I'll pay you $100 to paint my house, and I'll provide the paint. And he shows up to paint your house, and uh, you say, I'll pay you $100, but now you provide the paint. He wouldn't paint. He say, okay, forget it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Um, when a business or management takes advantage of a worker who is a Christian, what recourse does he or she have? Hmm. Now, that's an interesting Because that gets back to the verse you noted earlier, that uh, we're to be obedient uh, to our masters. Again, I, th- I think that there's some things in the question we'd have to have clarification on. In other words, if, is the business violating the, the agreement of a, ter- of, of a contract term? In other words, are they not doing what they agreed that they would do? Under those terms, I think a, a, a union is has the option of saying, well, we won't work if you're not going to do what you promised us you were going to do. But if, if, if the matter of just taking advantage, in other words, they told me that my job would involve uh, sitting here putting tiny two tiny pieces on this thing as it passes me on the assembly line, but now they want me to go over there and lift 50-pound bags of concrete. I'm not lifting 50-pound bags of concrete. I told them, I, I I understood that I got to put these tiny little pieces on the assembly line as it passed by me, and now they want me to lift bags of concrete. Clean I'm the bathroom. Clean the bathroom. Uh, I, I didn't uh, sign on uh, to uh, clean the bathroom. Right. Now, I, I don't, I mean, if if they are within their contractual rights to ask you to do this or that, even if you feel like it's um, maybe unfair or you don't like it, I think you still have to submit to that. Okay. Let's stop there, Jacob. We're at break time. Oh, we are. Boy, it's gone fast. Uh, oh, okay. you got to get your break or else you're calling the union steward, aren't That's you? That's right. Let's have a break or we're going to go on strike. <laughs> All right. We'll take a break, and then we'll continue discussion about unions on the other side. Uh, we look forward to your comments during the break. What do you think about what we've said so far? Do you have any more thoughts or comments about unions? Be on the phone when we get back and be ready to go at 877-381-4567. Send your emails uh, in or join in the chat room. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this break. Have you checked out all of the resources on collegeview.com lately? Check it out now while you listen to these important messages. The virtual Bible study will be right back after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. Ephesians 6 verse 13 says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. The Lord has supplied us with all the necessary things, and he expects us to stand. The New American Standard Version renders this to stand firm. It seems that there are far too many Christians who are unwilling to take a stand. Some will not take a stand against false doctrine or those who teach it. They have a low tolerance for naming names of those who hold false views. They don't want anyone to specify the errors that are being taught and practiced. They even go to great lengths to find some way to justify their continued fellowship with false teachers. There are plenty of passages that instruct us to rebuke false teachers and to have no company with them. Consider Galatians 1, 8 and 9, or 2 John, verse 9. These folks need to take a stand. There are others who will not take a stand. For instance, some will not take a stand on important moral issues. Too many Christians want to be like the worldly people around them. They want to dress, talk, and act like the world. They want their children to be able to do all the worldly things that others do, including the wearing of immodest clothes, mixed swimming, dancing, attending filthy movies, and so forth. They simply do not want to be different from the world. In this, they refuse to take a stand. The spiritual battle with the forces of Satan is a real battle, and it is intense. There's no time to be weak or indecisive. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13 says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Bob Tidwell, and I want to remind you that the Virtual Bible Study provides a great opportunity to use your computer for something good. So turn off the TV and guide the family around the computer each Thursday night for the Virtual Bible Study. 
broadcasting around the world with truth that are out of this world. The Virtual Bible Study. Take it away, guys. And we welcome you back to the Virtual Bible Study tonight. We'll remind you this program is brought to you by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us by visiting our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com or collegeview.com. And if you're interested, we're podcasting a recent sermon at our website now. You can find out more information about that by visiting collegeview.com and uh, sign up for that and listen to a sermon every week that's presented at the College View Church of Christ. Uh, in the chat room, Jacob, guest 391 quotes Luke 3, verse 14. John the Baptist told... The, the soldiers who came to him, the soldiers demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said to them, John the Baptist said to them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. There's something to that. Yeah. You know, and, and I do think that, you know, that maybe there's evidence that unions cross the line concerning being content with their working conditions and their pay and so forth. I understand the idea of pressing for more if you can get more. But I do think that there's a, a principle there, being content, that uh, Christians should honor. I'm not expecting worldly people in all labor unions to honor that, but I think Christians should. And you've uh, and we've been spending a lot of time defending unions here so far. But I will make uh, my opinion uh, known. I think unions promote attitudes that are unscriptural and ungodly. I think I think, I think the general result of the the attitude of unions is typically an unscriptural attitude. Yeah, we've been saying that the concept of a union is right. not unbiblical, but certainly some of the things that are in the modern day uh, typical of unions would cause concern. Mm-hmm. And I think Christians got to be aware of that. I think it would be foolish not to be aware of that. Uh, As we go on with Skip's question, he asks, when a Christian who is part of a union is hired, who does the worker answer to in the place place of the employment, in other words, the the boss or the company or the union? I think that's a good question, and and it should be understood. I'm still obligated to my master. I'm still obligated to the one who employed me. Uh, my, My allegiance is not to the union first and to the company second. I have to be honoring my relationship with the company. All right. And, uh, Go ahead. The, uh, Skip asked a question. Can a Christian be a part of a union that sends a large portion of its dues to causes that are questionable in the least? Guest 126 says other Christian employees find that their union dues are used to support the same kinds of activities or that the union dues are used to support political candidates who support these ideas. Uh, Guest 126 referenced the teachers' union that he uh, he uh, disagreed with because of, of practices. Yeah, that they he support. said, I strongly opposed uh, the NEA because of their policies which support abortion on demand, special protections for homosexual teachers, distribution of information to young girls promoting lesbianism and so forth. Yeah, uh, I think you you got got an issue there. If you're a member of a union like that and your dues are being principally used to support things that you can't support, then then I think you've got to... You got an issue. Yes, 26 goes on and says, I didn't join the NEA and chose an alternative organization which didn't involve themselves in these types of activities. And so I think uh, Guest 126 helps us answer that question. Can you be a part of a union and send a large portion of its dues to questionable causes? I'd say uh, you want to be careful about that. Yeah, and I think you need to you need to be informed about that. As a Christian, you need to, to know what your money is being spent for. Uh, you just can't blindly endorse something or participate in something. You have to be educated and find out if they're doing things with this money that I can't support. Then I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a part of it. You know, this question came up because Skip was mentioning that there's been a big controversy in Indiana. In fact, it was a controversy the week leading up to the Super Bowl in Indianapolis. The legislature passed a right to work law in Indiana, mm-hmm. and that basically means you don't have to be a member of the union. If there's a union at that place, prior to this, Indiana, like some states, was a closed shop state. That means if the union is in there, if you work there, you've got to be a part of the union by law. Right. Uh, Indiana uh, changed that, and a number of states have, and, and the, the expression that's used is right to work. You mm-hmm. can work, and you don't have to be a mem- member of the union. Uh, so... You know, I, I, you'd be in a you'd be in a bind if you were in a closed shop state, and and they were forcing you if you're going to work here, you got to be a member of this union, and we're going to spend your union dues to pay for abortions or distribute uh, pro homosexual uh, promote a pro homosexual agenda. 
you'd you'd have to seriously consider whether you could work that job. All right. Look forward to hearing your thoughts on the phone. The line's open. Let us know what you think about unions. And real quick, a couple more questions, and then we've got to get on, Jacob, to the rest of our questions for the night. But uh, Skip really got into this question. He he, he gives more points for clarification. Uh, Oh, we skipped one. What does a Christian do who's a union member? What does he do if he wants to help another worker but the union forbids him from helping? Uh, I'm not sure of the scenario there he's suggesting. Maybe I, I'm, I am working this job where I just have to put two tiny little pieces on something as it passes me on the assembly line, but you're over there all day long lifting bags of concrete. Right. Can I, if I'm caught up on my work, can I, can I come, go over there and help you lift your concrete bags? And the union says, no, you can't help him. Well, I think I think in that scenario you'd have to submit to whoever had the authority to tell you what your job is and what you should be that doing. That gets to a question that we skipped as well. When a Christian who is part of a union is hired, who does the worker answer to, the place of employment or the union? Yeah, we did touch on it. I think, oh, I think it's clear. You, you, you are first obligated to the place of employment. Okay. And then uh, uh, can a Christian be a part of a union that has a reputation for engaging in intimidating tactics to win its cause? Again, you got to you got to use your best judgment on that. Whether that whether you could or not, I think you'd have to make a judgment call. And finally, is it right for a Christian to participate in a strike that is simply supportive of another union that is having a problem? I uh, think no. I think so. Yeah. And and unfortunately, that does happen. And as a Christian, you'd be in a predicament, and you'd have to make a decision to do what's right. Uh, in other words, if if the if the terms of my labor contract are being honored, in other words, they haven't crossed me up, yeah. but uh, there's another union that works the same site, and they've gone on strike. But so I'm not going to cross their picket line mm-hmm. to support that union. Although I have a contractual obligation at that place, but I refuse to do it because I won't cross the picket line because I want to support the other union that has an issue with. It. I, I don't think you could do that. I think you'd be breaking your word to do that. All right. Uh, I think that covers it. Well, we do need to clarify. Uh, guess 4:30. We made the comment about uh, what about the uh, union who uh, would support uh, things that or are unscriptural that are against God's will. Could you be a part of a union who took your dues and used them in that way? Guess 4:30 says the same could be said for anywhere that you spend your money. Maybe may it be uh, retail stores, a doctor's office, restaurants, etc. It's very hard to determine where your money ultimately ends up. I, I, don't, I don't think I, that's the I same parallel. I don't think so. I, don't, I think it's apples and oranges. In other words, if I go over here to the convenience store across the street and I buy uh, a cup of coffee and a donut, yeah. and then that guy who runs that convenience store makes a profit on that coffee and donut, he takes his profit and he goes out and hires prostitutes, say. Well, I'm not accountable for that. Right. Uh but that'd be so. That's not the same thing. When I'm when I'm voluntarily contributing my money to an organization that is doing things I don't agree with, that's a different thing. There's a difference between buying a service. Once you've paid for a service, you're not accountable for right. what people do with the money you paid to buy that service. Right. But if you're voluntarily contributing to something, that's a different question. I'll tell you a similar scenario would be uh, in Nashville, not far from here. Many people go to Baptist Hospital. Right. Uh, for medical treatment. I, I don't have any problem with that. I can go to Baptist Hospital. I can pay for a service at the Baptist Hospital. Uh, and if they make a profit on that service, as I suppose they do, then I, I'm not obligated for what they do with the profit that they gained from it. But I tell you, that would be an t- entirely different thing than me making a voluntarily voluntary contribution to the Southern Baptist Convention. Right. There's, it's different. All right. Uh, guest 430 uh, suggests the place of employment should be obligated to abide by the rules they have agreed upon with the union. Yeah, the the, the master has obligations as well under the scriptures, uh, and so that would be a requirement. Appreciate uh, those thoughts. Um, so have we covered the unions well enough? I we've think got... we've talked. Uh, yeah, I think we've got it covered. It's a it's an important question. All we've right. got two questions left. We're going to take our break, Jacob. And we'll come back to these last two. Soldiers and being saved in the Old Testament dispensation. Yeah. Those two questions. Lots of things to talk about in a short time to do it. So we'll go fast on the other side. Don't go anywhere. The virtual Bible study continues right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. Hello, everyone. I'm Monty, a member of the College View Church of Christ. 
So if you've been hearing all about the College View Church of Christ on the virtual Bible study and are interested in finding out more about the church, but you live hundreds of miles away from Columbia, Tennessee, and can't come and visit with the congregation to find out more, there's no reason to fear. After all, we live in the 21st century. Here's what you can do to find out more about the College View Church of Christ. First, why don't you check out our website while you're listening to the virtual Bible study? You'll find important information about the church there, including bulletin articles there on various subjects, and can even listen to sermons that have been presented at the College View Church in the past. Secondly, if you have questions about the church or about any Bible teaching, why don't you send an email to us and let us know how we can help. Send your questions to questions at collegeview.com. That address, once again, is questions at collegeview.com. We can even have a personal Bible study with you over email if you desire. And finally, if you would rather talk with someone in person, give us a call at 931-381-4567. That's 931-381-4567. You can call this number anytime. If you don't get an answer, leave a message and we'll call you back as soon as we can. We're glad you're listening to the virtual Bible study and hope to hear from you soon. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. A recent survey asked this question. Is the Bible the Word of God and literally true word for word? Those who answered yes were 33% of the total U.S. population, 23% of Catholics, 22% of mainline denominations, 10% of Jews, and 59% of those identifying themselves as evangelical. Those stats are from the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. The Word of God says in Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Colossians three seventeen. Now, back to the program. We welcome you back to the program tonight, and we look forward to hearing from you. Maybe you're listening to us in the podcast version. You're not listening to us live. We'd still like to look for, listen, uh, hear from you. We look forward to hearing from you, uh, especially if you're an international listener. Maybe you're not in the United States. Let us know. Uh, just send us an email and let us know you're listening to us. and new listeners. Uh, that uh, found out about the program, let us know that you're out there. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a question about something you've heard or a suggestion for a future edition of the Virtual Bible Study, we'd like that suggestion as well. Maybe we need to clear up one thing uh, that left uh, left a little bit open in the minds of some of our listeners. Uh, Lane uh, says, I think we ought to still be aware of whom the money goes to if we know beforehand what the money supports. And we're not. Uh, we, we 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 would agree that you maybe want to be cautious if you know that a business is engaged in things that are unscriptural and you would disagree with. There's no problem with being, uh, you know, to to boycott that. Uh, we would agree. Oh with yeah, that. I so, think Christians sometimes do do that. I I'm, I mean I've done that before. I've said I'm just not going to do business at that place because I don't like I don't like raunchy advertising or whatever. Yeah, you know, maybe there's a product that has just very nasty, vulgar ads all the time, and I, yeah. I could very very well likely make the decision. I'm not going to support that company. I don't like what they do. Uh, but I, but I, I think there's a principle, a basic principle that we stated that is true. There's a difference between buying a service and making a contribution. Okay. All right. We need to go on. The next question is, what about a Christian being an active soldier in the military. Let me read this. This is from Keith in uh, Hendersonville, Tennessee. And he asked, uh, here's a question. Is it scriptural for a New Testament Christian to be an active soldier in the military? Can a New Testament Christian in good faith, maybe not having signed up for war by the occupation they've chosen, be called to war where they will possibly take a weapon and kill another man, possibly another Christian? Okay. Okay. in the chat room, I think a basic answer has popped up that I was going to go to. Uh, guess 391 says, what about Cornelius? Why did Peter not tell him he couldn't be a soldier and a Christian? Uh, well, Jesus did, or John the Baptist did the same thing. Yeah, we already read that in Luke chapter 3 when the soldiers came to him demanding him saying, this is Luke 3:14, what shall we do? He said to them, do violence to no man. Uh, oops. Uh, and neither accuse any falsely and be content with your wages. He didn't say, you got to quit being a soldier. Okay. Uh, John the Baptist didn't say that. Peter didn't say that to Cornelius. All right. And what John did say is, you got to behave yourself morally as a soldier. So you, just because you may be in the military doesn't give you the right to do things that would be ungodly or sinful. Yeah, and every once in a while, I mean, even in recent news stories, we've heard about some of our soldiers who've done some things that, they shouldn't have done some immoral deeds that they should not have engaged in. Okay. 
and and a Christian, I mean, you'd still be obligated to do what is right. Now, uh, so so I got to do what's right. Even as a soldier, I can't violate the commands of my God. I ought to obey God rather than men. I ought to obey God rather than the four-star general. Right. I got to obey God rather than men. Now, that raises the question: What if you had been in Nazi Germany yeah. in the 1940s? Yeah. Could you have been a soldier in Hitler's army, Anthony? Oh, that, I haven't thought of it. That, oh, from that, that seat of the booth is getting hot. Yeah, ooh, you know, I, I hear a lot of sort of hypotheticals involving that time frame and in that location, but I haven't thought of it from that angle. All right. I, 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 now, I take a, what may be considered a bizarre view. I think in that case, no, you can't be a soldier because here's a here's a military that's that is engaged in all kind of sinful things. It's it, and they were fighting a war of aggression. Okay. And the Bible tells us not to do those kinds of aggressive things. That's immorality. So, I I take the view. I don't know. If, I don't know how many would agree. With, I take the view that in World War II, this would be a judgment call. In every armed conflict, you would have to make the judgment call. But I take the position that a Christian could have served in the Allied forces under the Allied command because they were they were fighting a defensive war against an, a, a, an immoral aggressor. So I think the Christian would, in that, if you were a Christian in that time, if you were in Germany, you would have had one answer. If you were in the United States or Britain, you would have had a different answer. Okay, I agree with you that uh, the Scriptures didn't, when the opportunity arose, tell soldiers that they needed to quit their job. Furthermore, we understand that soldiers and government have a God-given role. It is God's will that government do things, including capital punishment. We've talked about this Punishing before. evildoers. Punishing evildoers. In general. Punish, in punishing evildoers. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. Uh, it is God's will that the governments be there. And so, for instance, wouldn't that apply to, for instance, when the United States was fighting against Nazi okay. Germany? Okay, right. In other words, here's, here's this God-given government acting in opposition to evildoers. Right. Okay, so it's God's will. And if it's God's will that this be done, then it wouldn't be sinful for a Christian to do it. That's a, it'd be a, that'd be a, an oxymoron. oxymoron. Yeah. Okay, you can't have something that's God's will and then it'd be sinful at the same time. Okay, now, I agree with all those things. I think that's the theoretical end of that's it. That's right. That's purely theoretical. On the practical end of it and the doing of it, there are lots of there are lots of uh, flies right. in that ointment. Oh yeah, because well, how do you know that the war is 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 you got to you, you got to take it, make a good faith estimation. You know because, because, because the Nazis were being told this is uh, we're not being aggressive, we're doing the right thing. Yeah, they, and so you're so you're, you're you, getting a lot of propaganda. How do you know? Yeah, you have to be very careful. That that is as you say one of the flies in the ointment because your own your own side's going to throw lots of propaganda out there. To try and get you convinced that this is the right thing to do. So right. you got to. Secondly, uh, uh, it, I think a Christian probably makes a sorry soldier. Mm-hmm. At least in in armed conflict, okay. a Christian would make a sorry soldier because uh, any army wants to convince their soldiers to fight the enemy, to kill with hatred and malice. Hate your enemy. Right. Go after him. Bloodthirsty. Kill him. Just do everything you can to harm him. Shoot him between the eyes. Whereas a Christian is supposed to love his enemy, right. do good to them that despitefully right. use you and persecute you, Jesus said. Right. So I think in, in in practice, it'd be hard, in armed conflict, in actual practice of armed conflict, it'd be pretty hard for a Christian to be a good soldier. Right. And then, uh, and then, and then be faced with the point where somebody's trying to kill you. How do you keep, just even if you're not wanting to be bloodthirsty, how do you keep the right attitude towards yeah. these people? And, and I, I've actually had personal experience with people who came out of the military, and they were in shooting wars and and they were there they were spiritually badly damaged by the memory of what they had done and the, and the emotions that were generated in them as to, in regard to killing with hatred and so forth all right now to the question that Keith asked what if what if you got in a situation where you might be actually shooting at a christian over there on the other side right well if you think about that go back to the premise that I stated earlier okay here's a here's a guy he's a christian but he's in in Hitler's Nazi army. And I'm over here on the American side, and we're shooting at each other. Well, actually, one of us is on the wrong side of that. Yeah. You know, and so if he's a Christian, I don't think he should be over there fighting for Hitler. Yeah. And so if I'm shooting at him, I think I'm shooting at somebody who's taking the wrong side in that in that conflict. And so uh, that, that doesn't 
that doesn't plague me tremendously. If I've made the right decision, if I'm on the right side, then that that part of it doesn't. I mean, I wouldn't want to do. It. I don't want to shoot and kill anybody. Okay. And and, and I, I I'm glad that the opportunities have availed themselves to where we didn't have to make those kind of decisions, Jacob. Right. The chat but, room. Yep. The chat, but, the chat room is filling up. Josh Josiah says. With conceiving uh, to be a soldier and a Christian at the same time, I don't think you could do it because of what Jesus says in John eighteen thirty six. Jesus answered, "My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be have been fighting that I might have been delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world." I don't believe that John eighteen verse thirty six is applicable to this because Jesus was talking about fighting for spiritual causes yeah, there, in a physical was, uh, yeah. physical war. Lane uh, says we are citizens of a spiritual kingdom. Jesus says that His kingdom is not of this world, and those who fight by the sword will die by the sword. John Matthew twenty six verse fifty two. Uh, again, I think that would be a misapplication of that passage as well when it comes to uh, fighting in an army. Uh, Lane says we should be caught up. Uh, we could we should. Why should we be caught up in the bloody affairs of the world, uh, taking souls that ought to be uh, fought on spiritual grounds, not physical? Again, but if the government is is authorized to do these things, then we think it would be uh, appropriate for a Christian to do them. I don't think it's unscriptural. For the the basic question is, can a New Testament Christian serve in the military? And I think the answer to that is yes. That's not saying I want to. I'm glad I don't have to. But I think the answer is yes. I don't. I don't think you can scripturally argue that it's wrong for a Christian to be in the military. Is it wrong for a Christian to be a police officer? Yeah. Is it wrong for a Christian to be a prison guard? Is it wrong for a Christian to pull the lever on the electric chair? We talked about that recently. I think no, because as you said earlier, Jacob, I just think it's impossible for something to both be the will of God and be a sin at the same time. All right. Now, the I know in fact I got some emails after that people disagreed with me, but I just I still hold that position. All right. Now, Lane uh, suggests, uh, are we aware that Cornelius was on the front lines in battle after the point of conversion? Josiah says he doesn't uh, see any uh, indication that he was. Lane says, but a soldier can also be an interpreter, a computer technician, etc. You do not have to kill be, to be in the military. But I would suggest that if you're a computer computer technician, or you're building guns, or you're yeah, or you're yeah. loading grenades, that you're just as, uh, as that's right. That, I mean, if you're contributing to the war effort, whether you're actually pulling the trigger, doesn't matter. If you're making the gun or or manufacturing the ammunition, you're you have no less responsibility in that matter than the guy who's actually pulling the trigger. I don't think that gets you off the hook. Uh, Guest 126 mentioned something that I think is interesting. Properly used, the military protects a sphere of civil life within which a relatively peaceful existence is possible. I think that's true. You know, I knew a guy once, Jacob, that worked uh, in a nuclear weapons facility. Uh And when he talked about that, he said he thought that his job actually was a peacekeeping job that it kept people from killing and wars from generating. And and I, I had to agree. You know, uh, since they dropped two bombs in Japan, all of the nuclear bombs that have ever been built have, have just sat there and done nothing other than keep the peace. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a sense in which those who serve in the military uh, do make peace possible for all the rest of us, and that's the thing to be grateful for. All right, uh, Jack is listening. Jack is in the military, and he says that he respects the fact that Christians have different convictions on the subject. For me, Romans 13 gives me the authority to serve, as well as the many centurions mentioned in the New Testament who are praised as Christians, God-fearers, and men of good character. In addition, if God opposed this profession, why does the Bible use military terms to describe being strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God, including the tools of a soldier, helmet, shield, and a sword? And we would agree with Jack that we do think that Romans 13 would give uh, someone the uh, the authority to be in the military. Again, we would just mention the caveat of you need to be careful. Yeah, I, I think I think it, I think being a soldier, it's not it's not unique. Every profession. We, we were talking earlier about being a member of a labor union or being a teacher or being a teacher. It presents challenges that the Christian has to be perceptive to, and make right decisions about it. And being a soldier is the same thing. It. it it presents certain challenges. I, I know Jack well, and I think Jack would agree with us. There are certain things. There are certain things that a soldier is forced to deal with that others are not, and a Christian has to make right decisions in those regards. But I, for my part, I'm very grateful for those who will serve uh, in a in a righteous cause, uh, and I think that we are all the benef- uh, beneficiaries of what they do. All right, uh, Jack goes on. He says, "If I thought my generals were engaged in a bad or illegal action, he'd resign." 
Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what you'd have to do. Again, like I said earlier, I don't care if it's four, a four-star general telling you to do something. If it's a sin, he's telling you to do something that's a sin. you got to say no. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 529. All right. And Jack says you have the right as a soldier to say no. You'll you reap the consequences of uh, your superior of those actions, but you do have the right to stand up for what you believe, uh, Jack says. All yeah. Right. We're out of time, Jacob. We are out of time. We didn't get all these. We letters. didn't get to I the mean, last question. We're going to have to throw, we're gonna have to throw the last question about how people were saved in Old Testament times. We have to throw that back on the back pile. Back in the bucket. Yeah. So uh, add to the bucket so we can get some more questions and we can have another uh, rapid-fire session of multiple questions in the times to come. And if you have a suggestion for a topic that would be good for a whole program, we welcome that as well. We just look forward to hearing from you. Dad, thank you for a good discussion thanks, on some Jacob. good topics. Anthony, thanks for being behind the controls tonight. Enjoyed your uh, comments and participation. No problem. Enjoyed and, it. And thank you for being here as well. We look forward to you being back again this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.